Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Coming up, we'll be talking about a federal court striking down the proposed Penn State Health Pinnacle Health merger. But up front, the environment and Pennsylvania's efforts to clean up the Chesapeake Bay. On the surface, it may not sound like a major issue. It's one of several that contribute to harming the bay. Cattle standing in waterways. Not only are the animals standing and walking through streams, but they're also defecating in the water. Democratic State Representative Mike Sterla of Lancaster is a member of a legislative delegation to the Chesapeake Bay Commission, and he plans to introduce a bill that would ban cattle from standing in streams. Representative Sterla, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Also joining us on the phone is Jim Cowell, who is president of the Pennsylvania Cattlemen's Association. Mr. Cowell, welcome to the program. Thank you. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. Representative Sterling, why is there a law needed to ban cattle from standing in streams? Well, I mean, for 25 years now, we've uh, tried to... Uh, encourage practices that are not only good for the livestock, but good for the streams. Um, And a lot of uh, farmers have done stream bank fencing. They've restricted their uh, livestock from the streams. Um, You know, we've seen a lot of improvements in a lot of places, but there are still a lot because of historic practices that just say, well, you know, it's easy to let my cows out in the pasture and they just happen to end up in the stream. And um, so, I mean, I, if you look at the states that surround us, uh, you know, Maryland and Virginia, both on the Chesapeake Bay, uh, they have bans against livestock in the waterways. Um, and Virginia just recently uh, did an appropriation to uh, fund uh, stream bank fencing in the entire state of Virginia. And that alone, that one action of stream bank fencing to keep animals out of the streams uh, allowed them to meet their EPA requirements for total maximum daily loads. We are woefully behind in the state of Pennsylvania. We're at about 30% of where we need to be for our next uh, uh, benchmark. I want to talk about all those things, but something, a word you used, uh, historic. This has been going on since we have had dairy cattle, beef cattle forever, that uh, this is a way that the cows cool off. It's part of, you know, when there's a stream running through the the farm, they walk through it. What's different now? Well, you know, historically it was, uh, I guess, okay if there was nothing else in the stream and no one else was going to drink the water and everybody had their own well. Um, But these days, uh, I think with the scientific advances, one, we've realized that the pathogens uh, in the animals themselves has increased. So you have increased antibiotic use in those animals, uh, particularly in the milk-producing animals. And uh, so it's the, the the farmers that have excluded their cattle from the stream and and take fresh water from the stream to those animals instead of having the animals go to the fresh water in the stream um, have seen a reduction in costs for veterinary costs, uh, antibiotic costs, and uh, have actually seen improved milk production. So this is one of those win-win situations. And... Um, you know, people say, well, why are you picking on the farmer? I'm, I'm really not picking on the farmer. If, if we wanted to try and get the same amount of bang for the buck in terms of uh, eliminating pollution from the stream uh, by going into municipalities that have already upgraded uh, sewer systems, it would cost us hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. And we wouldn't get as much reduction in pollution as we would by going and helping out the agriculture setting. And so... 
this is a case where I'm I'm willing as an urban legislator to help pay for this or to pay for it completely because it's still cheaper than doing the other things and it gets me a better farm. We're going to talk about cost because I'm sure that, uh, you know, aside from the historic part of it, uh, that uh, and government telling farmers what to do, uh, the cost is probably the objection that you would hear most often. We'll talk about that in, in just a few minutes. Now, you are part of a legislative delegation to the Chesapeake Bay uh, Commission. Um, talk about exactly now you said about uh, historically people have not. Uh, been drinking the water. Well, they have. Yeah. You know, until before we had, uh, uh, you know, where the water was, water treatment plants and all that, they drank right out of the stream where all these things were running into it. Um, but what exactly with, uh, you know, the cows defecating in the water, walking through the water, bringing that sediment from the banks, uh, going into the streams, goes into the Susquehanna River and into the Chesapeake Bay. What exactly does it do? Yeah. Well, there's several things. One, um, all those pathogens uh, are not good for any of the stream life. It doesn't help the fish. It doesn't help, uh, you know, anyone, uh, humans either, or or the cows themselves. Um, most of the things that we're concerned about, though, in the Chesapeake Bay are phosphorus, nitrogen, and sediment. Um, the stream banks, in at, particularly in the southern counties here in the southern tier of the Susquehanna River Basin, uh, for years had, for uh, hundreds of years, had mill ponds, and those mill ponds, those dams at those mill ponds, backed up sediment for 100, 200 years. Uh, when those mill ponds no longer became necessary and those dams were breached because they became safety hazards, kids were drowning in those areas and things like that, that just meant that all that sediment that had backed up for 200 years behind hundreds, literally hundreds of dams in every county in uh, the southeastern tier is now flowing down into the Chesapeake Bay. We've seen the backup behind the dams on the Susquehanna, and now we're at a point where the Conowingo Dam is full of mm-hmm. sediment behind that. We've And we've heard figures in the billions of dollars to dredge that. Um, so part of it is we just keep, and, and the animals getting into the stream, keep kicking all that sediment back into the stream. So that's part of the problem. But we also want to make sure that we can, one, remove some of that sediment from the uh, streams themselves, but do some riparian buffers. When you do stream bank fencing and you can have some growth of uh, vegetation along that stream bank instead of mowing right up to the end, instead of having the cows trim that grass right down to the nub up to the edge of the stream, you can actually stop a lot of the runoff that's coming off of the fields from the, in terms of nitrogen and phosphorus, some of which is also trapped in the sediment. But you can do a whole lot. Now, there's a lot of people that say, why do I care? That's Maryland. You know the Chesapeake, the Chesapeake's yeah. Bay's in Maryland. Right. Who who cares? That's that's not my state. And I want to interrupt for a second. I okay. saw a quote where you said kind of Wingo Dam is in Maryland, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> because a lot of that money well, was yeah, right. yeah. Well, then, it was being lumped with the other Pennsylvania. Right. Dams. The question is, where's the who's going to pay for this? But um, it, but really, this is about uh, you know our streams in our backyards. Um, I saw a picture just yesterday of the Conestoga and kids swimming in the Conestoga. And, you know, it was a recreational place back in the early 1900s. I wouldn't let my kids swim in the Conestoga right now if my life depended on it, because um, I think it, it would. Um, you know, we saw uh, just recently in the Octorera, uh, somebody contracted a rare disease and died because of the pathogens in that stream. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no reason why we should be treating our waterways like they're sewers. 
Well, let me bring uh, Jim Cowell, who is the president of the Pennsylvania Cattlemen's Association, into the conversation. Jim, f- feel free to join in at any time. But okay. uh, your thoughts on uh, what legislative, or excuse me, what the Representative Sterla is uh, proposing here? Well, I, you know, on my farm myself, uh, we stream bank fenced all of our, our streams. Um, Thank you. <laughs> I, I do have some concerns about it. I'll be very truthful with you. Uh, first of all, we did put stream crossings in so the cattle have a designated area to cross the stream because that was the only way to get to land on the other side of the stream. There was no, no other access to it. Um, the biggest concern that most farmers have about this is it's the cost to put the fence in. And number one, and number two, some of the smaller farmers say they're losing too much land, not being able to use it. And the other thing is the maintenance. Uh, you know, yeah, there's a lot of cost sharing out there, opportunities to help pay for the fence, but to maintain that fence. Uh, if you're putting in electric, it's going to have to be mowed or weeded it out to keep uh, the, the electric working in the fence. And with the average age of the farmers in Pennsylvania and the United States being close to 60 years old, you know, to go out and have to weed eat 5,000 feet of uh, stream bank fencing every year to keep it working, it's just it's a pretty hard thing to do, and it's hard to get help today. Right, well, before, because I, I do want to get into uh, the last few things you mentioned, uh, some of the concerns, but overall, do you think farmers in Pennsylvania would support this? I... I look at it, and you know, I'm 60 years old, and we've had stream bank fencing for 15 years. Um, a lot of the older farmers are going to fight it, uh, and it, basically two reasons: one, they don't want the the hassle; two, they don't want their stream ba- their their banks growing up; and three. They don't want the government telling them what to do. <laughs> I'll be very truthful. Well, and, 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 you know, and that was one of my questions uh, because, let's face it, there are a lot of people out there who are independent and they don't want the, you know, when we talk about what's been done for the past 100, 200 years, a lot of people don't want the government coming in and saying, listen, you must build a fence here and keep those cows out of, this, out of the stream. Right. And it, a lot of the concern, and I hear it because I'm on the uh, conservation uh, district director, so we talk to different farmers about it. And the first thing that comes out of most of their mouths is, I'm surrounded by state game commission land. The deer are in that stream every day. Who's going to keep them out? Mm. So this is, <laughs> and this is some of the way people feel. You know, you're you're targeting livestock producers, but you're not targeting the whole problem. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, so let me have uh, Representative Sterla uh, respond to this. What about those concerns? I'm sure you've heard them. Yeah, I have, and and I am empathetic to this. Look, I I grew up at, near the headwaters of the Conestoga, and you know, as a kid, I, I was surrounded by farms, uh, but I also, as a kid, uh, played in that stream every day. Um, and you know, uh, what what I would hope we could do is get to a point where it is not costing the farmer anything. Um, I would like to see us do a stream bank fencing program and pay for it. I would like to see us give the farmer a yearly stipend for maintaining that stream bank fencing. Um, the The reality is the water that runs in that stream through that farmer's farm belongs to all the citizens of the state of Pennsylvania in accordance with the Constitution. So I want him to be able to have access to all that water. I want his cows to be able to cross that stream when they're going to another uh, side of the the, the uh, 
streams so that they can use all their land. Um, if we're going to take land, I want us to be able to actually pay the farmer for that loss of the use of the land. Um, but at the end of the day, I still don't want that water that I and every other citizen in this state owns to be treated as an open sewer. If if I came and and defecated in those farmers' personal well every day, I think after a while they'd be out there with a pitchfork after me saying, hey, get out of my water, you know. What are you laughing at, Jim? Well, I, I understand what, exactly. I agree 100%. I have city, uh, you know, city water here at our farm, and we basically fenced our streams off. Uh, all most of our cattle are either on uh, spring developments or on city water because of the gas industry down in our area. And you go up the road and you see a tanker truck sitting there, and you don't know whether he's unloading or loading, and he's doing it in our stream. So I don't want my livestock drinking that water because I don't know what's going in it. So I understand where you're coming from, and I agree 100%. The most important thing to a farmer is water. If you don't have good water, you're not going to farm very long. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Democratic State Representative Mike Sterloff, Lancaster, who has proposed legislation. Well, hasn't proposed it yet. I think you're looking for co-sponsors, right? Well, actually, what I'd like to do is get somebody who ha- is in from a, a uh, mainly agricultural area so that we can. I mean, look, I don't profess to know everything that should be known about agriculture. I want that expertise there so that when legislation gets written, all the farmers' concerns are taken into consideration. This is not about – this is not any anti-farmer legislation. This is about clean water mm-hmm. for all of us, the farmer included. You looking for a Republican? It would be nice because I think that we would have a better chance of getting it to pass right now. Mm-hmm. But Representative Sterling's legislation, the proposal, what he would do is uh, uh, it would propose a law that would ban cattle from uh, standing in streams. It has to do with cleanup of uh, the water and the, the Chesapeake Bay. Our phone number, if you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number one 729 Jim Cowell, of the president of the Pennsylvania Cattle Association, is also with us. I'm going to join in our conversation as well. But we're getting a number of phone calls here. Let's go to Gary in Juniata County. Gary, you're on the air. Scott, I'm getting really nervous. Yesterday it was raw milk, and today now it's, you know, keeping cows out of streams. <laughs> and I, I can read you two things. Uh, one is <clears throat> no administrative agency of the Commonwealth or any political division shall require any person to erect a fence along a stream, in a pasture, or other field for use of grazing for the purpose of keeping farm livestock out of the stream. That's the clean stream law. I mean, it clearly says in the federal law that you can't require a farmer to keep his livestock out of the stream. I'm all for what you're saying. The problem is, like in our instance, a quarter mile of stream we have going through our property. A quarter mile. Now, that's, that's just getting a little bit hard. And like you said, I have a township road that crosses that stream. I can't fence that in. That's illegal for me to fence that road in to keep that road from crossing that stream. That's an actual township road. So the moral of the story is yesterday you talked about raw milk. One person got sick over I don't know how long a period of time. You're way, way, way more in danger eating prepackaged salad out of your grocery store or eating it, whatever, or going to a fast food store where somebody doesn't wash their hands 
when you are, you know, drinking raw milk that comes from a clean sanitary farm, or if they find a way to let the farmer at least use some of that stream water through a pump or, you know, some reservoir, that the farmer can at least get some use of that stream water for his cows because most farmers are not going to be able to pump water with rotational grazing and things the way it is now. It's a long way to have to pump water. If you've got 100 or two or 300 acres and you've got to get water to those cows and you're doing rotational grazing, so, you know, you better come up with some extra things instead of just saying, hey, let's just erect a fence. I think there's somebody else running for president that said something about erecting a wall. <laughs> hey, well, Gary, thank you very much for your call. And, uh, Mike, I don't think you want to be, make that comparison, uh, erecting yeah. a wall. But, no, but I, let's go back to his original point. And I'm going to follow up with Jim with, with the other things he said. But uh, the ni- there's a 1980 law that says specifically that... Uh, state government, local government cannot ban, cannot force farmers or landowners to erect a fence. How do you get around that? Uh, the same way Maryland and Virginia did, and a lot of other states in this nation. Um, look, this is about clean water. Um, and, <clears throat> excuse me, the, I don't want anyone to feel that they won't have access to be able to use that water. I just don't want their livestock standing in that water and knocking down the banks of the stream. That's, you know, it's that simple. Um, but how did, how did Virginia and Maryland get around that law? Beats me, but no one, no one seems to have protested it in those two states. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Pennsylvania, though. And, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jim, the other things that, uh, that, that Gary mentioned about pumping water and that kind of thing, what, what do you think about that? Well, the, the problem is, and I agree with Gary, the cost. You you know, right now farmers are just, dairy farmers especially, are just barely making enough to feed their families. And you start adding them kind of cost in, even though you say you want to help pay for this, there's still maintenance costs. There's still time. You're, you have time. You have, to, you, know, you have to every day go out and do this kind of stuff that if you're doing that, then you're not doing something else. So... I understand where you know that yes it's great to have clean water but I don't I I kind of agree with Gary that this isn't I don't think this is the main problem not when you have other other sources going into these streams uh, I mean I I agree the stream bank fencing does help protect the the uh, stream banks and keeps the sediment out uh and you can go around our area and look and see how the, ch- the streams have changed just because of cattle and stuff standing along the banks. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that you're ever going – if you make it a law, you you know, you're going to have a, a lot of people fight. I, I think it's got to be a voluntary basis. You're not going to get everybody to do it. Mike? Well, I mean, we've had a voluntary basis for 25 years, and that's the problem is that when it's a voluntary basis, uh, we don't get the compliance that we're looking for. But um, beyond that, uh, look, I understand about pumping water. I, I don't know of any uh, dairy farm that doesn't already pump water because there's none that I know that use the stream as their sole source of water that uh, that doesn't get pumped out of that at some point in time. Right. Um, and so that mechanism is, in most cases, or I believe in every case, already in place. It's a matter of extending it to another meadow. It's a matter of – and that's the kind of stuff I'm willing to pay for. This isn't like, oh, my gosh, we now have to start thinking about pumping water, and we've never done that before. 
Every dairy farm that I know pumps water. Question for you, though. When you're talking about uh, providing uh, stipends and uh, helping farmers, well, not just helping, but paying for it, where's that money come from? Because as you're well aware, I mean, we have a tight budget here in Pennsylvania. Well, look, we're going to spend money one way or the other to try and clean up the water. And as I've stated, uh, you know, for example, in the city of Lancaster, I think we spent about $150 million with new sewer plants. We can get a tiny, tiny portion of cleaner water if we spend about another $300 million. Well, as a city dweller, how about if I spend $100 million instead of $300 million and get 10 times the amount of impact by saying, let's take the cattle out of the streams? Because it will give me 10 times the impact that I'll get by spending another $300 million in the city. The, the, this is about what is the most cost-effective way of cleaning up the streams in Pennsylvania right now. And right now, the most cost-effective way is in the agriculture sector. And I'm willing to pay for 100% of that cleanup. The pushback I'm getting is, well, you can't make me do it. Well, okay, so you want to make me spend three or four, all of us, that farmer included, his taxes are going to go up to help pay for my sewer plant. I'm trying to save everybody some money here and do it in the most cost-effective way possible. Let's take another phone call from Ben in Swatera Township. Ben, you're on the air. Yeah. I worked for a summer down, down at a polyface farm in, in Swoop, Virginia, and they're, they're big on uh, rotational grazing, grass-fed cattle, all that stuff, and their cattle certainly don't spend time in streams. And my question is, can't there be another method for urging farmers to do this, such as a consumer label or raising consumer awareness so that you know when you buy milk off the shelf at the grocery store it has a stamp on there and you know that the milk that you're buying didn't go um wasn't from cattle that were spent their time in streams so you're saying you think that uh that voluntary aspect of it that uh, there would be more farmers who would participate if there wasn't government saying you have to do this Absolutely. You can charge more for the product and pass that money to the farmers directly, and the government doesn't even need to be involved. And then consumers can feel good about their choices. All right. Thanks for your call. Yeah, I I think we ought to not have any speed limits on the highway. And and businesses could say, our trucks drive at 55 or 65 miles an hour, and they would certainly make more money than, than people who don't label their trucks as driving at 55 or 60 miles an hour that are driving down the road at 120 miles an hour. The reality is it's not going to work. We've tried all of those things. We have tried a voluntary approach for decades. It hasn't worked. I, you know, and I know people say, just give it another couple of decades. We don't have another couple of decades. You know, I, I, I sit here and listen to this, and, you know, um, in my area, there's probably more state game lands than there is farms, number one. And I, I just can't... Believe that the the cattle or the livestock in this part of the state or any part of the state is making that much pollution in the streams compared to what is running off of uh, uh, Walmart parking lots and towns. This water has to go to the streams, and it's picking up stuff out of parking lots because these parking lots are all blacktop. That water can't be absorbed into the ground. It's running to a stream and. It's picking up uh, petroleum products, antifreeze. Uh, you have sewage plants. You have gas well companies that are doing gas well work that I guarantee you is, is polluting the streams a lot more than all the cattle in Pennsylvania. That's my biggest concern is I, I think, 
yes, this might be the cheapest way to go, to, and you may help correct some of the problem. And, I, and I'll be the first one to say I, I believe in stream bank fencing, and I think it's a good idea. But I just don't see how this is going to solve the problem. And we are dealing with a lot of those, addressing a lot of those things. We have all sorts of stormwater permitting in the state of Pennsylvania. If there's anybody that's building a shopping center, you ask them how much they spent on their stormwater, and they're going to tell you it is in the hundreds of millions of dollars in some cases because they have to retain all that stormwater on site. Um, there are actually cheaper ways of doing that now where we found if we if we do the um, – uh, 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 wetlands, we can actually, there, there's there's projects we have examples of where by doing wetlands, you can reduce the size of the detention ponds, increase the impact of clean, cleaning um, on the water because the wetlands do that, and actually get more land, developable land for shopping centers and things like that. So we're, we, we've, look, this is, this science has been around for decades now. We've known this for decades now. We've asked politely for decades now that we just can't wait any longer to to say, let's give it another couple more decades. Let's do another generation of polluting the streams. We are out of capacity behind the dams. You know, I said the cost of cleaning up behind the Conowingo is in the billions, the billions, not millions, billions. That's one dam on the Susquehanna River. Uh, let's take another phone call from Corey in Lancaster. Corey, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, you're welcome. Um, I guess the first thing, so I had another comment. I'd like to follow up on uh, the man who represents the uh, the cattle industry. He had said that uh, some of the parking lots and such are an issue. They they are, they are an issue to an extent, but they're an issue with some more of the uh, the petrochemicals that, that, that come off. Um, the issue in the in the rivers and streams is more in the uh, the nitrates and such that are in the uh, the cattle species. Um, so the the parking lots really are, are a separate issue. The nitrates cause the algae bloom and such once it gets down to the Chesapeake Bay. Um, my uh, my, I, I wanted to give uh, a testimony to what this does. I, I'm here in Lancaster County where we have uh, the Mill Creek. The Mill Creek is one of those creeks where uh, voluntary efforts did, uh, the farmers did agree to put up fences. It looks like it's in the past. When, when I was a child, we used to uh, swim and play in that creek, and it was hideous. Um, since the fences have been put up, uh, it so is, we have seen drastic and almost unimaginable uh, improvements. Um, I won't say too much about the types of fish we're seeing in there now because my uh, my fishing buddies would get upset, but let me just say we've seen amazing improvements. Hey, hey, um, Corey, for some reason I have like uh, two phone lines with you, so I'm going to hang up on uh, Corey for now. And, uh, you know, there we go. But uh, basically the point he was making is that uh, where he sees in Lancaster County, where uh, there are fences erected, uh, where there were buffers, that he sees a big improvement. Um, You know, something else that um, you and I were talking a little bit about this earlier, Representative Sterla, that uh, before the show went on, that... It not only is uh, is a question of the animals defecating in the water, but the erosion where you see the hoof prints and, uh, you know, how the, you know, the, because sediment, that is a big problem. What about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the other issues that we're dealing with is what's called legacy sediment. Um, you know, we had mill dams that uh, backed up uh, sediment for several hundred years. 
And then because of safety issues, though, when those dams were removed and the, there was no longer a need for the mill dam to, to grist the mill or, or to, to uh, you know, mill the, the, uh, the corn and the, and the wheat, the, uh, that sediment has just sat beside the stream. And even in non-rain events, when you just get freeze-thaw in the wintertime or just the natural flow of the stream, that just keeps redepositing hundreds of years' worth of sediment back into those streams that feed down into the Susquehanna. So we've also done projects, uh, pilot projects, where we've removed that sediment and restored that stream basin to a wetland and the water flowing into that is dirtier than the water flowing out of that wetland versus what used to be the water flowing into it was cleaner than the water flowing out of what was an old uh, uh, legacy sediment site. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have the ability to clean up the streams and the water in Pennsylvania for Pennsylvanians. For me, the secondary benefit, even though I'm a member of the Chesapeake Bay Commission, is, oh, and by the way, it also means that the water is clean going into the Chesapeake Bay. I actually want to do this more for the people of Pennsylvania than I do for the people in Maryland and Virginia. I think that that, that is a wonderful, magnificent asset that we all have here in the East Coast called the Chesapeake Bay. But I want to be able to walk into the stream behind my city and use it and recreate in that area as opposed to saying, yeah, when I get in there to do a stream cleanup, I make sure that I go home and take a shower immediately and make sure I don't have any open wounds and make sure all sorts of things because I'm afraid I'm going to get sick. Let's take one more phone call during this portion of the program. Robert is in Thomasville. Robert, you're on the air. Hello, Robert. Okay, I guess he's not there. Um, I, his opinion was uh, he thinks that this law makes the farmers of today pass for, uh, pay for the past buildup in the streams. Uh, Jim, what do you think about that? Uh, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, this has been a long, long time coming. Um, like I, I said, you know, the cost of this and this, you know, <laughs> It just keeps going back to, you know, the, the farmer's state of mind and the age of the farmers today. Uh, you know, working with the conservation district and going out and talking to farmers about stream bank fencing and stuff, most of them say, well, I'll quit farming before I do that. America cannot afford to lose any more farmers. Uh, that's number one. Uh, we struggle now to feed the world. We're still continuing to feed the world. And we need to be able to do what we need to do. I just think that maybe the conservation districts, the NRCS, and these guys, when they come out to talk to these farmers, need to work with them a little bit more instead of saying, we, this is exactly where the fence has to go. And I tell farmers, you have to make this stream bank fencing work for you. It's, you're trying to do two things. You're trying to keep the livestock out, but you have to make it work for the farmer. And... Hey, Jim, while I have you on, you know, we, we're only going to have another minute or so, but I have an email here from another Jim in Camp Hill who asked, um, explain why other taxpayers should pay for the cleanup of the farmer's mess. Well, that's, that's a good question. And my thought to that is uh, farmers today, if, if the government comes in and says you have to stream your fences off and we're not going to pay for it, you're going to put farmers out of business because with the profit lines as tight as they are on dairy farms and beef cattle farms right now, 
they are not going to do it. When you start talking about a dollar and a half a foot to put in fence, and then to maintain this fence, you're going to run farmers out of business. And then sooner or later, it's going to start costing everybody at the grocery store. Hmm. Uh, gentlemen, I want to thank both of you for being with us. One final question, uh, Representative Sterla. Um, punishment. Um, what kind of, if, if a farmer would violate, is that part of the legislation? Well, I, we haven't developed anything yet. Um, one of the things I want to do is try and make sure that we can work with variable setbacks, uh, as he pointed out, to make sure it works for the farm. Instead of one standard, oh, you got to be 30 feet or 45 feet back or whatever the distance that, that is deemed best, there are variations. This, Topography's we Topography's different right, everywhere. Right, right. Yeah. We, should, we should be able to do that kind of thing. Um, you know, I haven't even thought about any uh, sanctions against any farmer that doesn't comply. But I think with anything, um, you know, part of this is I want this to be as painless as possible for the farmer and in and hope that the farmers that have done this already voluntarily with their own money can explain to the other farmers, you're actually going to get a better product for your farm. You're going to make more money if you go along with this. And if we're willing to, as a government, pay for it, which I, I disagree with the caller who said, why should we pay for that? It's the cheapest cleanup I can possibly do. And I'm going to pay for a cleanup one way or another. So I want to do that cleanup. And I want to cooperate with that farmer. I want to work with the Farm Bureau and the Dairymen's Association and the Cattlemen's Association to figure out how we can make this work because it's my best bang for the buck as a government. State Representative Mike Sterla of Lancaster, Jim Cowell, who is president of the Pennsylvania Cattlemen's Association. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. A federal court has rejected the proposed merger between Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. WITF's Transforming Health reporter Ben Allen has been following this story that has had uh, that could have had a significant impact on health care in central Pennsylvania and set a precedent across the country. Ben, thanks for joining us this hey, morning. Hey, thanks. Oh, wait, let me get the right one. Yeah. There. there you go. <laughs> I know you were over there. Uh, thanks for having me, Scott. Also joining us is uh, Thomas Graney, who is professor of law at St. Louis University. School of Law. He's the director of the Center for Health Law Studies, considered an expert on health law and antitrust, formerly with the U.S. Department of Justice. And uh, I understand that you like to go by Tim, even though your name is Thomas, right? That's correct. Go okay. On. All right, Tim. Well, then we'll, we'll bring you into the conversation here in just a moment. But, uh, Ben, you've appeared on uh, Smart Talk here several times, reported uh, more than once on on this proposed merger. It right. is a big deal. So the Third Circuit Court of Appeals ruled yesterday that this merger cannot go through. Give us a little bit of background. Okay, so let's remember this merger was proposed about two years ago. Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health said we want to merge. We want to become one health system. Uh, and, uh, of course, that has to go through a regulatory process. And uh, in, the terms of, in, in the time that it was getting reviewed, the State Attorney General's Office and Federal Trade Commission both decided they want to challenge this merger. They want to actually try and stop it. So uh, they took uh, Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health uh, to court. This is a federal court case, uh, district court uh, here in Harrisburg, and about a week of hearings. And after that, shortly after that, uh, only a couple weeks later, district court made a decision. This is 
a judge that many people know, Judge John Jones III. He's made rulings on the Dover School Board or uh, Dover School District uh, intelligent design case, the same-sex marriage case in Pennsylvania. So a well-known judge, and he decided that this merger can go forward. That's a big deal. And, uh, and usually, 95% of the time, the Federal Trade Commission says, all right, we're good. We'll move on. Fine. You're right, District Court Judge. Um, well, in this case, this was one of the rare cases where they decided to challenge it. So they take it up to the uh, Federal Appeals Court, which is in Philadelphia, and uh, you get this this decision that reverses the district court decision, basically stops the merger in its tracks. And um, while there are still some options for Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health in terms of what they could technically do to try and make this merger happen, um, you know, from... And, and Tim can certainly speak to this a little bit better than I can. But from all intents and purposes, this merger uh, seems to be pretty dead. Before we go any further, full disclosure here, and uh, I think anyone who listens to this program on a regular basis knows that Pinnacle Health is one of our financial supporters on Smart Talk and the Transforming Health Project. Uh, Penn State Health is w- one of uh, the financial supporters of that. So wanted to talk about that uh, right off the bat uh, for full disclosure. Before we bring... Uh, Tim into the conversation, though, Ben. Uh, let's talk about the whys. Those hearing about this for the first time or may not be familiar with yeah. it, why did Pinnacle and Penn State Health want to merge? Well, they made the case that, you know, this will make them more competitive. And and if you think about it, uh, you know, you've in York County, you've got WellSpan, a big health system um, that is expanding. Uh, just uh, added a hospital in, in Lebanon. Um, then you have uh, to your east, you've got in Lancaster County, Lancaster General Health, which is now affiliated with Penn Medicine, a very big health system. Uh, then just across the river in Cumberland County, you've got Holy Spirit, which is now affiliated with Geisinger Health System. So um, if I'm going to put myself in, in Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health's uh, shoes for just a second, they're probably saying, We've got all these health systems that are kind of circling. We've got to come together and try and um, try and beat back all this coverage uh, or all this competition, I should say. If they if they had merged, they would have been, and it, uh, you, you got to watch the wording here, but they would have been essentially the biggest health system in the mid state that is solely based in the mid state. Geisinger um, is a big one, and then, of course, Penn Medicine is a big one. But they would have been bigger than Wellspan and um, and would have really been able to, to as the court argued, uh, could have uh, elbowed out uh, on a lot of competition. Um, what this means for people, and this is the important part, what does this mean for you if you go to Penn State Health or Pinnacle Health? Well, Nothing's really going to change right now. I mean, uh, you know, they're still going to perform the services that they have always performed. I think what we could see, though, Scott, is a different uh, plan for the future. Um, Penn State Health has talked about this bed tower that they need to build. Um, Could they now have to build one to to alleviate capacity? Pinnacle has talked about, or or they they have both talked about how you know if they were a, a bigger group, they could have engaged in more innovative stuff. Will they engage in that innovative stuff? Uh, it, it's all uh, fair questions to ask going forward. Mm-hmm. So Tim Graney with uh, St. Louis University Law School. Uh, so what did the appeals court, or why did the appeals court take this view? 
Well, you know, the, the ultimate question under antitrust merger law is, is trying to figure out uh, where uh, hospitals compete. And that, in turn, uh, depends on how people buy their insurance plans and how those plans structure their networks. So uh, the, the, what, what the courts have determined over years is that hospital competition, and we're talking here about basic acute care hospital competition, not competition for transplants and high-end services, but the basic meat and potatoes of hospitals, obstetrics and, uh, and uh, some uh, oncology and surgery and, of course, emergency and, and trauma care. Uh, all that care is basically local. And the reason is people do not want to travel great distances uh, for their hospital care. They want to be near their families. They want their families to be able to visit. And uh, there's really a mountain of economic evidence that sort of shows that that's the case. And uh, in this case, the important factor is uh, the, the factor that drives prices. And, and, you know, ultimately, antitrust is a consumer protection statute. It says we want to protect consumers from uh, monopolies and oligopolies, companies that get too big and are able to charge higher prices and or lower quality. And uh, in this case, uh, the the, uh, the Court of Appeals followed what most courts have been doing in recent years, which is to sit, to look at the way uh, hospitals contract with insurance companies, because that's where the pricing decisions are really made. They're really made in the negotiations between insurers and the hospitals as to what they're going to charge. Hospi no hospital charges insurers its so-called bill charges. Those are, those, those are negotiated way down. So the ultimate question is, what, would the, what difference would this merger make? And the evidence that, that impressed the Court of Appeals and the, they found the, the, the district court judge, Judge Jones, made an erroneous uh, application of the law. What impressed the, the Court of Appeals was that uh, insurance companies' payers were very clear that they could not sell a health plan uh, without these two hospitals. Uh, in other words, if they merged, they couldn't exclude them, hence they couldn't use any leverage to bargain as, as to price and quality. And that ultimately is the question. Can there be competition at the level of hospitals competing for insurance plans uh, business? Because that's the only thing that drives prices. And there is also a mountain of evidence that shows high prices by dominant hospitals are one of the leading, if not the leading cause of higher costs in uh, American healthcare system. So, uh, you know, the FTC's ultimate mission here is to preserve competition. And uh, just as a side note, I'd mention that's something that has been uh, the policy of both Republican and Democratic administrations over the years. And, and indeed, uh, you know, a competitive hospital market is essential not only to the Affordable Care Act, but it would be it would be essential to the plans that others have proposed, including uh, Donald Trump and uh, Congressman Ryan, who uh, you know who are proposing a voucher system for Medicare. All of that depends sits on a platform of competition. So if you don't have competitive hospitals to bargain with, the uh, excuse me. If you don't have a competitive system to bargain, competitive hospitals to bargain with, uh, you really don't, you really lack the uh, 
the driving force for cost control. That's not Trump calling. <laughs> and and just to hop in here uh, on the point, Scott, that, that Tim just made, you know, that leverage, what does that actually mean uh, in terms of your costs? Well, the appeals court found that because a Penn State Health, Pinnacle Health combined entity would have that kind of leverage, that there would be a small but significant price increase. That's kind of the test. And that's 5% a year. 5% a year. It's known as a SNP, if that's easy to remember. But that's on top of all the other price increases you would see, you know, inflation and, you know, the usual uh, health care inflation as well. Yeah, Another five percent a year that that this new merged health system would be able to charge because it is so dominant in this market. Of course, that they use that reasoning to block the merger. But yeah, the, uh, the, the attorney general of Massachusetts did a study a couple of years ago about what was driving up prices in that state, and it did a very sophisticated analysis of all the factors costs causing costs to go up. And it really found that the ability of dominant hospitals and also, to some extent, dominant physician specialty groups, uh, their ability to get much higher prices, certainly way higher prices than we see in the rest of the world, uh, by virtue of there being the must-have hospital, is really the leading cause of high costs in Massachusetts. And I think uh, probably the state attorney general in, in Pennsylvania, uh, the, the antitrust experts in their office were impressed with that too uh, because they joined the suit of the FTC. So uh, when you see the state attorney general joining forces with the federal government, you have a sense that there is, a, there is something of a consensus that this is a legitimate market definition, and it's a legitimate problem. All right, so I want to bring a couple points up. Uh, ben, as I mentioned, we've talked about this several times. Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health, I mean, the rising prices, that was the, the big concern, and that grew out of whether it be a monopoly or dominating the market. Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health promised not to increase prices yep. as, as part of this deal. Uh, Judge Jones, the district court, bought that. Yep. The district, the, uh, the appeals court said no. Right. So, and this is worth mentioning, and thanks for bringing this up, Scott. But that's you my know, job. They, 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 they pointed to it. Penn State Health and Pinnacle Health. They made this deal with the two largest insurers in the in the market. That's Highmark and Capital Blue Cross. And they said, at least over the next five years, we're not going to raise our prices. And Judge Jones said. It's not the court's responsibility to guess what's going to happen beyond these five years. I just have to consider what's in front of me, and what's in front of me is the prices aren't going to change. So I have to, uh, you know, allow this uh, this this merger to go through. Well, the appeals court looked at it a different way. They said that's the role of courts. The role of courts is to is to is to figure out and make an educated guess about how consumers and industries are going to behave. And their educated guess was after these 5-year or 10-year agreements run out, those prices are going to go up because of the market. And they also make this rationale as well. They use this as well in, in their decision. They say, you know, if if we allowed uh if we allowed this decision, then any 
industry that wanted to merge or any two large companies that wanted to merge could simply create some price contract that they'll make for the next five or 10 years and the government won't be able to stop them. They won't be able to stop them from merging because they'll just point to that and say, well, our prices aren't going to go up in the next five years. But the court says, well, we've got to look beyond five years because once the egg is scrambled, once these companies are merged, you can't unscramble the egg. And we've got to consider the impact on consumers going forward. Tim, we only have about uh, three minutes left. Um, you know, you, you deal with this across the country, uh, have looked at these kind of deals across the country. And this would possibly, I mean, this was being, this case was being watched across the country for possibly a precedent. But we do know that one of the things that's happening, Ben listed them, the number of health systems that are merging. What does this ruling do? What does it mean for future hospital mergers? Well, you know, the FTC has won a number of cases in recent years. Uh, there's another one pending right now up in Chicago. Uh, and if that went the other way, there might be uh, a slim chance the Supreme Court would take a look at the ultimate issue in this case, how you define markets. But it's pretty unlikely, but that could happen. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the real question here is whether uh, antitrust law can preserve at least some degree of competition around the country. So, uh, so there is price competition, which, as I say, really everybody's policies uh, really depend upon. Uh, but there, there is a legitimate question there. I'll just throw in one more wrinkle, because there are two big cases being tried in the District of Columbia in December, in which the largest insurance companies and the two of the four of the five largest insurance companies are merging. And uh, that's a very important one on the other side of the the. Uh, the equation, which is should we, we allow giant insurance companies to merge? Uh, and the Justice Department is challenging that and trying to stop those mergers. And uh, I'll just uh, – the, the wrinkle here is that some people say, well, maybe it's good to have giant insurance companies bargaining with giant hospitals. I call that the sumo wrestler theory, that the consumer will be better off when the two giants bump bellies in the middle of the ring. Um, that's really a fallacy. The, the economic evidence doesn't support that. Uh, a lot of times the, the sumo wrestlers shake hands and decide not to bargain <laughs> with each other. So, uh, But, but you, you have to watch both sides of the equation because – Ultimately, I think pretty much everybody other than those uh, hoping we have a single payer or a European system, uh, pretty much everybody uh, agrees that we have to have competitive insurance markets and we have to have competitive uh, hospital and physician markets. Uh, otherwise, the system doesn't work. So, so uh, we, you're really dependent on the courts uh, in both, both instances. Thomas Graney. Tim Graney is professor of law at St. Louis University School of Law, director of the Center for Health Law Studies. Thank you very much for being with us today. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And Ben Allen, WITS Transforming Health reporter. Ben, I'm sure we'll be talking about this again, but uh, thanks for bringing some clarity to it. Always good to be with you, Scott. And I should mention that uh, WITS uh, Transforming Health takes a, a deeper look at the changing tide of health care. Check out WITS Transforming Health. From policy to personal choices, we're taking a comprehensive look at today's health system. Online at transforminghealth.org, a partnership of WITF, Penn State Health, and Wellspan Health. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, we're going to be talking about solitary confinement and also those scary clowns that are showing up all over the country. That's coming up on tomorrow's program.